Welcome to The Laws of Style, featuring conversations on creativity, fashion, and the law from the leading edge of our economy and culture, hosted by noted fashion lawyer, Douglas Hand. On this episode, we have Stephen Cole, uh, who is the CEO and president of the Council of Fashion Designers of America. Everything we do is to help those designers, those members, and their businesses. But you and I recently got back from a a trip to China. And we took a romantic rickshaw ride. We're also recently coming off a uh, successful, I thought, New York Fashion Week men's. The narrative has unfortunately been about it's not uh, significant enough because where's Ralph Lauren? Where's Calvin Klein? Where's Michael Kors? Where's Tommy Hilfiger? Hello, and welcome to the podcast, The Laws of Style, downloaded to you from the offices of the law firm HBA, high above Bryant Park in the Fashion District of New York City. I'm your host, Douglas Hand, fashion lawyer, fashion law professor, and self-styled, well-dressed man. Today, on this episode, we have Stephen Cole, uh, who is the CEO and president of the Council of Fashion Designers of America. Stephen, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Doug. So for uh, our listeners who aren't familiar with the CFDA and what it does, tell us about it. So the CFDA is the Council of Fashion Designers of America. We are the governing body of American fashion. Uh, It is a membership organization that has 500 or so designers, menswear, womenswear, accessory and jewelry designers who apply and are accepted into the organization. So we are organized to actually service those members. Everything we do is to help those designers those members in their businesses. We also work with people outside of the organization, outside of the membership, uh, industry friends and colleagues that might come from retail, uh, editorial, uh, manufacturing, but also have a stake in the success of American fashion. And it's our job to create a program to promote and help everyone uh, do better. Well, so you and I recently got back from a a trip to China, uh, where we met with officials from the trademark office, court system, and other governmental officials. Um, We were presenting a CFDA-produced report uh, on U.S. designers who had issues with trademark pirates in China. And the goal was, of course, to educate and potentially influence some changes to the legal process in China. you know, uh, our current administration and its current policy on trade with China made that a little bit more of an arduous task. Uh, a lot of the, uh, the the back and forth on that was happening as we were in flight and, uh, you know, when we landed, the, the positions uh, coming from the Trump administration had changed pretty drastically. Um, but, you know, I think uh, upon our arrival in China and with the meetings that we had, we at least established an initial dialogue um, with those authorities. And I feel that, um, you know, that's always the first step to affecting some change. But I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the trip, um, you know, that we haven't shared. Yeah, I think the uh, trip we took to China uh, was important in CFDA's work and how we work with our members. The idea actually uh, to focus on trademark IP issues, challenges that American designers are having came from members of the CFDA, actually Mansour Grabiel and Rebecca Minkoff, 
who independently were, were dealing with issues with impacting their firms and together came to CFDA and said, wouldn't there be some collective power if the organization grouped designers together and led an effort uh, to try to create change in China? And so um, we took that on. Uh, we and just for our listeners, you know, uh, one of the issues with the Chinese system is that it's what's known as a first-to-file system Correct. for, for yeah. trademark, which means that anyone, um, even with no intent to use a name in commerce uh, or actual use in commerce, can file for and register any trade name, which, you know, con uh, contrasting that in the United States and many other systems, there has to be an intent to use that mark in commerce and then ultimately use in commerce before a application even registers. So it's very much like the US regime with respect to domain names. Uh -huh. um, that's the same regime that China has with respect yeah. to trademarks. Yeah, and we do so much at CFDA supporting designers, young designers, promoting designers, that a lot of people are just trolling those programs and seeing someone who may have won a scholarship, uh, who may have won a Young Talent Prize, and then registering those names. And so they're not even thinking, those designers aren't even thinking of doing business in China, and then when they're ready to go to China, they're uh, confronted uh, with the fact that they can't use their name. And so we reacted and took the uh, initiative on uh, and was able to work with you and your firm, uh, Mark Reiner, your IP guy who has been great to CFDA and also some counsel in Asia that has experience uh, around IP. And what we did was we looked at our membership, uh, we went out to our membership and we collected data to see exactly what that impact uh, uh, was. And it was significant enough uh, to put into a report uh, and we uh, shared that report uh, with recommendations to Chinese officials uh, on some steps that could be uh, made to actually support American brands wanting to come uh, to China. And you're right, when we got there, actually in one meeting, I don't even, I guess that might have been with the trademark office, we were actually middle of the meeting and it uh, was, the Americans on one side and the Chinese on the other side, and we were drinking nice tea, Chinese tea. The tea, tea was great. Very, very um, uh, elegant tea, and just started the conversation, and someone came in the room and handed the head person uh, a piece of paper, and everything <laughs> stopped, yeah. um, more or less. And uh, so timing couldn't have been worse, but what was successful about what we did uh, is much like what we did years ago around IP and copyright protection laws in um, the United States, while we didn't get any laws passed or changed, we had heightened awareness and uh, acknowledgement uh, on a problem. And sometimes that's the first step, just creating a conversation or putting a spotlight on something. And I think we did that very successfully. Yeah. And the people we met with in China were Chinese lawyers, um, government officials, uh, retailers, we had JD.com, Alibaba in the room, both gigantic global Chinese companies. And there was a 
real interest for them to engage in the conversation. While their hands with those people that we were meeting with might have been tied, there was an, an, an interest and a willingness to recognize the problem. And, and a business solutions. logic, I think, and the business to, logic. to for China and for Chinese citizens, both on the production side, right? Because American brands cannot produce in China under their own label if they don't have trademark That's rights. Right. Moreover, Chinese consumers in that giant growing middle class that, that has a, a hunger for European and American luxury products, they also can't get authenticity, authentic products in China uh, because of the same problem. And so it, it really is a problem for the Chinese government to have to wrestle with. And uh, I think we presented some potential solutions as well as, as you said, put a real spotlight on the scope of the problem in a very objective way with that report. And if you remember, we had a great lunch with um, many embassy representatives, IP people, uh, assigned to uh, China. We were in Beijing to their embassies in, in Beijing. So we had the Germans there, the Italians there, the Brits there, the French there. Um, all eating Chinese food with that big yeah, Lazy Susan. Yeah, yeah, all really interesting kind of Lazy Susan style, which is very traditional. And, and that, to me, was one of the best meetings because they were on the front line uh, with this issue. And we had taken the lead uh, in uh, establishing this report. And the report's on cfday.com. Uh, you can find it there, but we took the lead in establishing this report and actually provided a valuable resource and tool for them as uh, a helpful way in their work in addressing the Yeah, issue. and I'm, I'm hopeful that they adopt a similar format so that we can collectively go to the Chinese government yeah. with, you know, with more data points from right. other jurisdictions. So. And we took a romantic rickshaw ride from the <laughs> Forbidden City or the Old City or something. Indeed, it was a did. long roundabout way to get where we wanted to go, but we got there. We did. And uh, the masks <laughs> for that particular week with the extremely high oh, pollution content yeah, in the air bad. were, uh, but you look great in yours. I think. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Um, well, so so that's one way that the CFDA is helping membership. Yeah. Um, you know, we're we're also recently coming off a uh, successful, I thought, New York Fashion Week men's, and um, the CFDA has a, had a big role in, in producing that and, and creating a platform for that. Can you speak to that and and its its success and maybe some of the detractors' comments on it? Sure. We just finished seventh season, uh, and again, the reason we started Fashion Week for men here in the United States and New York was because our industry came to us. Um, historically, men's have shown during women's market, which is February and September, women's weeks, February and September, the men's market's different. So they, sh they actually do market months earlier than women. So by showing in February and September, they've already done the commerce, so the show was an afterthought. So they wanted to align the show more closely with their market. So it was some of the top retailers like Bruce Pask at, at Bergdorf, designers like, like Todd Snyder, who felt like the, the strength of American fashion warranted it, its own week. So we pulled that off uh, and we had some great early founding partners like Amazon and Cadillac who came in and really helped us uh, create a men's fashion week. And the idea was always to stamp it big, 
uh, footprinted in the international calendar uh, and create a lot of energy around it. But we knew that that kind of production and the cost to do something like that isn't sustainable. So the strategy was always to begin to decentralize it and really let the city itself be the, the backdrop. And that's kind of where we are now in, in, in season seven. And, and the talent that we had just a couple of weeks ago were incredible. You had Willie, who mm -hmm. was just on your show and is one of the finalist uh, representatives for the Walmart Prize going right. to London, representing the U.S. in, in, in February of 2019. You had Emily Bodie, Bodie yep. who's one of the 10 finalists for the very prestigious CFD Vogue Fashion Fund, um, among others. And um, the uh, critics will say the problem with New York Fashion Week is are no big brands. Where is Marc Jacobs? Well, Marc Jacobs doesn't really have that much of the men's business, really, like maybe 3%, if any, not at this point. Where's Ralph Lauren? Where's Calvin Klein? Where's Michael Kors? Where's Tommy Hilfiger? And at CFD, we have a philosophy about Fashion Week and fashion shows, is, and it is. Brands should do what is best for them those brands and Michael chooses to show his men's and women's together Ralph mm -hmm. likes Milan and so the narrative has unfortunately been about it's not uh, significant enough because those big guys uh, haven't been there and that's been unfortunate because that story has uh, taken away from who is there and uh, you have people like David Hart who, who's been consistent Ovadi and Sons. Mm -hmm. You had uh, a brand this year, Kenneth Nicholson, uh, Neil, NIHL, one of the LMH finalists. Uh, Robert Geller. Always um, a favorite uh, of mine. You had so many young. Uh, and I thought Carlos Campos Carlos as well Campos. had a really you strong had, you know, And so uh, I, it's funny when, when you always say you don't want to read the reviews and what people say about you because you don't want to. Um, get bothered by it, and I always say that, but then I'm like frantically Googling to see what people say, and particularly um, Guy Trebay, who is the, uh, a writer for the New York Times and, and writes about men's and does men's reviews. And this season, Guy said, you know, we had kind of come into our own, and I felt like the story had shifted from not who is showing, but who is showing. Mm -hmm. And so uh, uh, I, I thought really... Uh, proud of the work and and the content that came out of that and the opportunity that came out of that and and, um, and so that's that's the men's fashion week season seven and next season will happen late January 2019 and then for um, um, the summer instead of July we're actually shifting to June uh, which is before Europe which is just another enhancement or a change um, to be even a little bit earlier to support the American designers. So Stephen, for our listeners who are not familiar with the seasonality of design and the timing of fashion weeks, can you provide some education there? I mean, why are we looking at lines so far in the future relative to when they'll be in stores? Yeah, um, it's a, a favorite conversation uh, for me to have. Uh, but basically, designers show two main collections a year. A more established designer might do four, but let's just stay with two for a second. Uh, they show in February, and they show in September. 
In September 18, which is coming up uh, in two months, the designers will be showing clothes that are spring 19. So everything you see on the runway, for the most part, in September, you can't even buy. And maybe even some of the stuff you see on the runway won't even be produced. Uh, you have to remember, a runway is, show is as much about sales as it is about marketing. So lots of times designers create show pieces that are really meant to create uh, brand, um, DNA, or buzz. Uh, and so the buyer reacts, buyer buys, and then those clothes get delivered in the spring. In February, it's the same thing. You buy those clothes in, in, in September. And that's just always been the traditional market because it gives the designer enough time to produce. It, get, it gave the edit, editorial um, teams time to identify product that they would run later in, in, in issues of the magazine closer to, to delivery. Um, and that's just the way it was. And, and it actually made sense 30 years ago. Uh, now it doesn't make as much sense for some because of the immediacy uh, of how a fashion show is seen by an audience. So traditionally, you didn't really see those clothes until they came in. It, it was September. like a trade show, yeah, and only you, insiders right, went. Only and, insider. Yeah. Now through Instagram, well, first with the bloggers and internet, and now with Instagram and every other social channel, we're seeing that stuff so, so quickly. So there's some confusion, perhaps, some people think that the consumer isn't sophisticated enough to know that those clothes aren't available. So some brands, Tommy Hilfiger being the, the biggest and the most successful, have stopped showing clothes that are for sale six months later during Fashion Week, and they've started to show clothes that are for sale now often referred to as see now, buy now. Uh, and Tommy's done a great job on that. Uh, he has collaborated with Gigi Hadid, Lewis Hamilton, among others, and he's done these entertainment-level shows. Think Victoria's Secret uh, on the runway. Um, and that way, he's taking advantage of his marketing spend, the show, to drive consumers into the store. And other brands are, are experimenting with that uh, or, or doing that. Burberry has been one. Rebecca Minkoff has been another. Tom Ford did it yeah. uh, once, and then uh, he felt it was a great idea, but an idea not ready for its time, so he's reverted back. Burberry as well. Yeah, yeah, to the uh, original concept. So there's a lot of different things happening during Fashion Week. Um, some brands, uh, Alexandra Wang being uh, an example, have abandoned February and September and have put their collections on the, their main collections on their pre-collection schedule, uh, which is uh, December and June. So June, Instead of showing in September, Alex actually showed his collection in June and combined it with his resort collection. And with that, he, um, and the advantage of that is he will deliver earlier than everybody else will deliver spring who are showing in September. He's built in multiple drops, so he's not dropping it all at once. So there'll right. still be freshness in product. Um, he will be in the store earlier, so the clothes will stay full price longer, which is definitely a plus for a designer. And 
it gets to take time off in, in August and kind of rejuvenate and refresh. So that's a new concept. Rosie Azalin and Narciso Rodriguez uh, are trying. So we are in a state of people, brands, designers, all doing different things. And one is not more relevant than the other. Again, it goes back to our philosophy. Brands should do what's best for them. Right. No, and certainly, you know, from the editorial perspective, it's difficult for the editors to make all of those, you know, it, it was more efficient for them to go to a round of shows at similar times of the year and get that content out. But there are so many more, if you include the blog sphere in the editorial process, there are so many more people that you still have interest generated by those more disparate shows. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so... Pivoting a little bit. So you know my book, The Laws of Style. It you wrote is... a book? <laughs> well, which, Yes, of which, course which, I know your book. Which, I, we did a talk on your, about your book at Todd Snyder's store in Madison Park, Square Park. That's it. Indeed we did. And uh, it's available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble oh, and good. my publisher, the American Bar Association's Great. website as well. Um, but in that book, I elucidate a bunch of guidelines uh, for men to dress in a manner that is capable and elegant because, at least for myself as a, as a lawyer, I think that that is the most effective way to, to dress. It's consistent with my practice as a lawyer as well as uh, what I think clients want to see. Um, in your role as uh, you know, a, a president and CEO of a global organization uh, with board members like, like Diane von Furstenberg and, and Tommy Hilfiger and, and Ralph Lauren, who maybe have a, uh, a more traditional view of what, uh, what a president should look like um, that is more skewed towards tailored clothing, but also acknowledging your other membership, um, American designers who um, you know, have brands that have grown up in an era of casualization and, and wanting to, um, you know, to support all members. How do you go about uh, presenting yourself, and is it somewhat chameleon-like, depending upon who the audience is and, and what the day is? No, I think about it in the morning, uh, what's my day and who I'm going to say. Sometimes it has to do with um, who that person is in terms of the hierarchy of fashion, uh, and also my familiarity with what I think that person will be comfortable with or not. So if I can get away with not dressing up, and I look at my day, I'm not going to dress up. Um, you, full disclosure, you're also the legal counsel for CFDA. So you come to CFDA board meetings, and you see me in a suit and tie at a, at a board meeting. I'm not going to go to a board meeting um, not wearing a suit and tie. I'm not going to go to a big pitch to a potential funder um, dressed like uh, a casual just off the street guy, right? But in my day to day, I tend to be less suited and kind of more casual. I think because I work in fashion, I have a greater opportunity or a license to do that um, than say people who don't work in fashion. For people, it's interesting, people who work in fashion, a lot of them don't really dress up. I mean, you look at a designer who comes at the end of their show and does their wave, look at Prabhu. It's always the white t-shirt and like a pair of jeans, right? I mean, designers tend to get uniforms. So I'll take advantage of that. Like today, I got up and um, we were um, um, 
picking we, what we were interviewing, the 10 finalists for CFD World Fashion Fund. So I'm on that panel. I'm one of the judges. And I was going to be with Diane, Ava Chen from Instagram, Andrew Rosen, uh, Anna, um, Rupal from Saks, Mark Holgay, Jeffrey Kalinsky, Joseph Altazara, uh, hopefully I didn't forget, uh, Nicole Phelps uh, from Vogue. And I thought, like, oh, I know all those people. I know how Andrew dresses, you know. He's a casual guy. Um, Mark doesn't dress. Jeffrey comes in T-shirts and cut off Gucci shorts. So I was like, all right, I'm cool today. Like, I don't have to do the, the suit today. Um, and, um, but I, I always gauge it by, by who I'm going to be with and what is the intent of that meeting yeah. um, as well. Well, so it's time for, for your four W's. Um, each podcast, we ask our guests the, the four W questions about All right. what they're wearing. Um, so starting with the what, I mean, just in terms of for, for the people not viewing on YouTube and simply listening, what are you wearing today? I'm brand. Is that the what? Well, that's, that's, that's the who. That's the who. <laughs> what I am wearing is a black shirt, a button-up shirt, uh, black pants, um, and black slip-on yeah, you've got shoes. a nice monochrome thing, black frame glasses. And black well. frame glasses and a little bit of a... Silver necklace. Yeah, you got a silver necklace yeah. and your wedding ring. And, and a watch. watch. Um, with a black face. I always wear a watch. Yeah. It's, it's, it's Even though I never use it, I always look at my phone to see what time it is, but I always wear a watch. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, to be honest, in terms of accessories, nothing defines capability and elegance more than a I agree. A, a, I think a, nice a, a guy can really define style by his watch. So now to the who. Who, who makes the who. all this All right. So the glasses are crew, K-R-E-W-E. Uh, CFDA member, Sterling, who was a CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund winner. The shirt and the pants are also CFDA member, a guy named Ben Stubbington, who is the menswear designer for Lululemon, which I think he does a great job in that kind of I like the, the hidden placket. Hidden on the pocket shirt. and kind of get a little button down um, collar. Mm -hmm. uh, shoes are, can you guess? Those projects? They are greats. It's the okay. original Nick Wooster great. Ah. You know, I know he's got a new leopard. Shout out print. to Ryan. Yeah. Um, and Nick. Yeah, I love I love greats. I think what Ryan has done at greats is is awesome. Um, necklace, uh, Jordan Askell. Wow. So, uh, nice. Uh, uh, so, and a question which you may not be able to even you may not be able yeah. to answer the when question. Do you have any idea what season these items are from? I think everything I'm wearing is probably seasonless, right? Yeah, I yeah. think that um, these greats have been forever. Right. Uh, and um, the shirt is probably last year. I don't think you can get this shirt anymore. Um, and the pants are currently in the store now. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I think I'm going to develop a lot of anecdotal evidence about the irrelevance of seasonality in yeah. a, lot of, uh, yeah. a lot of fashion. Um, and I think you answered the why, uh, as you described your process for getting dressed this morning. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, so, you know, our, our deceased friend, Glenn O'Brien, uh, once said, style is a visible manifestation of personality. So for you, somewhat ethereal question, but what is the difference between fashion and style? Well, that's a question that I've been asked before, and uh, even like in conversation, say you meet somebody at a party that you don't know, and 
they find out what I do that I work at CFD and I work in fashion. They're often like, well, how do I look? Do I look okay? You know, is this is fine or I don't know. Like that, they, people want validation, right? And um, uh, I always said that style is not about what you're, this is probably what everybody tells you when you ask them this question, if you've asked other people this question, but it's true. Style isn't about what you're wearing. It's about the confidence in what you're wearing or how you feel um, by wearing that item. Um, you know, style is really an expression of yourself. Um, and if you put something on and you question it and you feel uncomfortable in it, then you probably don't have style, right? You should probably go back home and put something on that gives you that, that boost, right? To me, that, that style, right? And, um, and some people are just incredibly stylish. You know, Nick is an incredibly stylish guy. Like another talented designer who is a Siete Vogue fashion fine finalist and presented this morning, and I was just obsessed with the way he was dressed, was Kirby from Pyre Moss. He had these mm -hmm. Rick Owen shoes on, he had his own pants on. Um, you know, he just like really just always got it together. And right? owns it. And owns it, and it's about owning it, yeah. and and that that's the confidence. And you know, fashion is is my definition of fashion, and it might be because of my role in American fashion is a business, uh, and uh, that's the reason you become a fashion designer. Might be because you've loved fashion, or you've you you grew up around someone your grandmother who sewed and you sat at her footsteps or whatever your kind of emotional pipeline into the industry uh, was, um, ultimately, if you decide to um, um, work in fashion or be a fashion designer, you're actually working in business. And it's important, I think, that designers um, um, uh, approach um, fashion as, as a business. I guess a consumer, you know, if, if style is about owning it, what does that? What does fashion mean? It's 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 whatever whatever you think is cool and whatever you think is um, interesting. Well, I think amongst designers, particularly in the luxury segment, there's a, there's a bit of a stigma around a designer being commercial. How do you feel about that? Given your statement on on what you think fashion is. Yeah. Well, I just did a. Um, interview, I shouldn't be plugging another interview I did, right? I just did an interview uh, with models.com. Um, I am not a model, uh, but they do these industry, in these industry interviews, and he asked me that question, but he asked it a little bit different. He says, well, Europeans will say American is, fashion is too commercial. What's your response to that? And I'll give you my response that I gave him. I was like, yeah, so what? Like, isn't that the intent of it? Is right. to have commerce, commerce, commercial, to sell something. Um, if the uh, approach to fashion is art, creating something uh, that you have no intention or strategy on selling, well, then that's art. You know, put that on exhibit, sell tickets, let people come in, look at it, and that's it, right? Um, commerce is an important part of it. And what that doesn't mean, it lacks creativity or originality or innovation. You can still be creative 
and innovative and be commercial. So mm -hmm. we're Americans. Now, you'd sell me this coffee cup that says HBA if I wanted it and asked for it. That's just the way we <laughs> operate. Diane and I were once in Paris um, for our Americans in Paris, and we were walking um, past a shop, and we went in the shop, and there's this French woman, she was so French, and she had these beautiful display racks um, made out of metal. They were very unique, and I don't speak French, but you know, they were speaking French, and then afterwards, Diane told me, she said to, Diane said to the woman, she said, um, you know, what, where did you get those? You know, where could I get them? So my husband made them for the shop. And Diane said, well, I would love for him to make me some. And, and would you sell them? And she's like, oh, no, we could never sell them. You know, so <laughs> it's really about that American entrepreneur. American would have sold you every one of them. Right. And they would have been like, get your pickup truck and come get them in, in, in by end of day, right? So it's that entrepreneurial spirit that I think has been, um, uh, really driven and, and, and been an important part of American fashion. Well, and even with basics, which one can look at as pretty commoditized, right, and not a high level of design quotient in, in certain garments, there's a story creation that designers have to go through as well to, to distinguish themselves and distinguish their trademarks. And so there's certainly a, a great degree of creativity in that process. And one of one that is just as important, really, as the design of the garments themselves. Um, not necessarily a question, but if you have a... Yeah, no, I agree with that. We, uh, again, at this event we do in Paris, which is uh, called Americans in Paris, we take 10 young designers to Paris Fashion Week, and we take a three-day space and create this showroom to expose them to some international press and buyers that might not be coming to New York. And every year it's sponsored by um, different industry friends and... This past season, it was sponsored by only the Brave Diesel, mm -hmm. which is um, uh, Renzo Russo's company. And he was speaking to the designers. And he's been in business 40 years. He owns Marcella, Victor and Rolf. Um, um, John Galliano works for him and at Margiela, and um, you know he's pretty much an iconic legend, uh, young designers worship and these young guys got to meet them meet him and he was sharing his wisdom and somebody was asking him about um, his his opinion on the business today and he said when I started 30 years ago or 40 years ago or, or decades ago when he started the focus was always the product the merchandise if you didn't have that right from the very beginning you failed and then he said Today, it's changed, and he reached into his pocket, and he pulled out his cell phone, and he said, this is the focus. If you don't have the content and the story to tell your message, you'll fail. And he wasn't saying that product and the merchandise wasn't important anymore. He was saying that you need to worry about the content and the creation and how you brand and market yourself immediately if you're going to have success. So it was very interesting to see a guy who had so many years in business, but also someone so insightful that he could change his vision right. um, to something that, that was relevant it, to them. It reminds me of something Robbie Geller said. Um, we were on a panel uh, that Joe's Black Book put on. And he pointed to his phone and said, I find myself, like I, I never thought when I graduated design school that I would be designing for a phone. Yeah. And he was talking about the actual 
elements of the of the garment and how they would be shot and look on a phone, yeah. which is very relevant to yeah. them. Um, apparel production is a dirty business, uh, literally. It is a, a wasteful business by and large, and there are a lot of reports on this. What is the CFDA doing um, in connection with its membership to to look at that and uh, either expose it or, or actually implement changes that, uh, that have an impact? A lot. We um, have sustainability as one of our core pillars of our, our work. And, uh, and I would say that in recent years, the last two years, the members have been more interested in that pillar. Mm-hmm. And so we've strengthened uh, our focus around that. Years ago, when I, maybe 10 years ago, we did some stuff with NRDC uh, on a program clean, called Clean by Design, taking some research that they did, which really uh, was about production uh, in China, issues like water use, dyes, and um, there was a 10-step process to really um, uh, shift production so it was cleaner. Um, and when we presented that, it wasn't really... Not that it wasn't well-received, but it, it was interested. Mm-hmm. And so most of our work after that had been in the emerging space, particularly uh, around the partnership that we have with Lexus. It's called the CFDA Lexus Fashion Initiative. So um, each year we pick five brands through an application process that go through a series of workshops, development programs, and are um, eligible for micro-funding. Uh, to support sustainable business practices. This year, Studio 189, Rosario Dawson's line, just won $90,000 based on her sustainable business model. So we've been doing that, and Lexus has been a a, a champion um, from the start. But interestingly, members who are 100 million, 150 million, 250 million, are starting to come to us and say, we want to... um, try to figure this out. The reason we were having success or have success with the small brands is because the structure of those companies is is nimble and more flexible. So they're more uh, able to create change or create new program. Those bigger guys are so entrenched in the culture and the way they're doing business, it's hard for them to get out of their own way. But now they're starting to see the importance of it. And they're also seeing that the um, consumer cares about it, and that's starting to resonate. So privately, we've been doing some consultancy with five big brands where we actually send someone in, an expert, does a diagnostic of mm-hmm. that business, uh, creates a blueprint with that brand on how to actually take some actionable steps, and then that is a, um, a strategy report for that brand. The work itself is on the brand. And just this morning, I reviewed something I'm really super proud about. Um, is a very, very comprehensive, sustainable, fashion sustainability um, database and information center um, that has everything to do with power, energy, material. Material's a big, big part of it. People, um, there are like 19 tabs in this this resource directory that will uh, go live on cfda.com in the fall. And that is 
not just available to CFDA members, but that will be available to anyone. Okay. So uh, it, it's quite comprehensive and, and incredibly impressive. So between the consultancy we're doing with the big brands, the CFDA Lexus Fashion Initiative that has touched many brands, and now this resource director, I think we're, 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 we're taking that pillar very responsible. So at the most recent CFDA Awards, uh, which was great, Kim Kardashian was honored as Influencer of the Year. Her, her impact on the fashion industry is, is beyond dispute. And uh, I think, you know, uh, her, her ability to connect with women um, of different body types is, is, is telling and important. Um, but perhaps speak to how brands have had to deal with the phenomenon of influencers. And if you think it's good or bad for the industry? I think it's good. Uh, I think any time a brand can promote product or sell product in, um, a, um, in a way that reaches a lot of people is great. I think she have 112 million Instagram followers. She got an award. Um, she, well, you, probably, you know this, Last year, in 2017, we um, broadcast the CFDA Awards in our red carpet arrival on our Facebook page through Facebook Live. And uh, we got some marketing assets from Facebook for free that we used. And we kind of like, oh, let's put it there. We didn't really know what we were doing. And we had um, roughly 100 million um, views. And I was pretty happy with that for our first time Facebook Live. This year... Um, we worked with a digital marketing agency pro bono to be more strategic in these marketing assets that we got. So that was super helpful. And Kim, who got an award, actually posted through her social channels that she's getting the award and watching on Facebook Live, CFDA's Facebook Live. And we had just under 4 million viewers. So we went from 100,000 to just under 4 million. Now, the marketing people are genius and brilliant and we'll do more stuff with them. But Kim's post clearly drove that attention. Seismic. And it's just incredible. And look, we often are uh, hard on things that are about change. And influencers changed the way the industry um, did business. I remember years ago when blogging was the influencers were just started, the, and, right. and, and bloggers were starting to get front row seats at fashion shows. We decided, well, we should include bloggers in the voting for the CFDA Awards. As you know, you have to mm -hmm. be industry people. You yourself are a voter. Um, and there were board members that were outraged that we would even consider bloggers. And now, they look at the influence they have. So I just think it's important. Um, I, I think you have to... Uh, align with the right influencer. It has to feel authentic. It has to feel like there's a relationship. Uh, and you have to um, own it and, and not make excuses for it if that's something that you think is right for your brand. Yeah. And from a legal perspective, disclose it. You know, yeah, disclosure. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, Stephen, awesome chat. And that's a wrap. Uh, thanks for coming in and sharing your thoughts. For your efforts, here's a copy of the Laws of Style. I know you probably already have one. but uh, as well. I have an autograph <laughs> copy. Thank you. <laughs> um, and don't forget to follow my Twitter feed and Instagram feed on Hand of the Law. Any, any plugs you want before we sign off here? Well, you can follow me on Instagram, Stephen Cold. Uh, 
on Twitter too. But most importantly, you should follow my dog, Donna. Official Donna the dog on Instagram. Indeed. Chihuahua Terrier Rescue. It's a great account. Thanks, everybody. All right, bye. <laughs> You've been listening to The Laws of Style with Douglas Hand. For more information, go to our website at www.hballp.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at, at Hand of the Law. Thank you for tuning in and stay stylish. <laughs>